Okay, good morning everybody. It's strange to be sitting back up here again. So, uh, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Almighty God, I pray that you will be present here, that your spirit is here amongst us as we talk about what work you, you the Holy Spirit, have done in human history for the last 2,000 years. I pray that you will bless us in our understanding of that and also bless us as we strive to be a part of that, that we will be a part of the history of your kingdom. So I pray that this will be a illuminating time, a beneficial time, and one that uh, puts us into our proper context, both in our relationship with you and also with those who have come before you, us, in service to you. So also I just pray for our country and for our state and for our governor, uh, for those that are making decisions that affect us all, that you will give them wisdom, show them grace, and that even if we agree or disagree with them, that we can show them grace as well. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so we are kicking off a new study that is going to be addressing church history. And we're going to be doing this through January, the end of January at least, is that right, Hoyt? Something like that? Something like that. So uh, as far as we know, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at, from now until the, at least the end of January, we're going to be looking at the first 600 years of the church, and then if, Lord willing, we will continue on and look at the, uh, the last 1,400 years of the church leading up to the present day. So that's a lot of history to talk about. Um, so that, that really leads us to the, you know, the question that is kind of at the crux of all that is, how did we get here? How did we individually get here? And how did we, First Baptist Mount Shasta, get here? How did the church in America get here? How did the church in every other corner of the world get here? Well, it came about somehow. We know where it started. It started with Jesus Christ. It started with his apostles. We can read that in the New Testament, and we're going to take a look at some of that here in a minute. But there's a big gap between the end of Acts and 2020, is there not? <laughs> so, I mean, and it's kind of like uh, looking at a map and seeing half the continents just covered in black. You know, we don't really have a clear picture of what everything looks like. So what we're trying to do is to explore that map, to take the dark continents and light them up so that we know where we are, how we got here, where we came from, and where we're going. So that is the, the ultimate question. And, and, you know, for most of us, and tell me if I'm wrong, and seriously, raise your hand and tell me I'm wrong. Uh, for most of us, you know, we read Acts, and then when we pick up church history, it maybe starts with Martin Luther, am I right, or, or with Calvin, or something in the Reformation. Like, we might have a clear idea of 
what happened from the Reformation down to today. I mean, and in some ways, that's when church starts to look like what we know it is today. Even though, in a lot of ways, even at that point, it was very different from the church today. And so we're going to be talking about some of those differences. Hopefully, after our first six weeks, we'll be talking about some of those differences from the Reformation to today. But for now, what we want to do is how do we connect the Church of Acts to 2020? What lies in between? And that's a really, really important question for a lot of reasons. And I'm going to get to why that's important at the end of this. Uh, For now, I want to just establish some foundations as to how this is and why this is before we address the why does it matter. Um, So, that's the basic trajectory of where we're headed. And in all cases, I like, you know, it's it's imperative to tie things back to Scripture, right? So, this is still the foundation, the Bible is still the foundation of what we're going to be talking about, what we're going to be learning about, and it's the place to start, is it not? So it's, it's interesting to note that Christianity is essentially, and unique among the religions, is truly a historic faith. It is a faith, it is a spiritual condition, it is a spiritual reality that is deeply rooted in history. How do we know this? Well, let's look at the Old Testament, And first of all. <clears throat> when you think of the Old Testament, is it not, in significant degree, a linear histor- historical narrative about the people of God? So you look at Genesis, you look then you know, through the rest of the Torah, you look through the historical books, all the way through Malachi, you see a linear path through history, not just a linear narrative. I mean, has anyone ever actually read the Book of Mormon? No? So it's filled with stories of Lamanites and Jaredites and all of these other peoples that nobody has ever heard of outside of the Book of Mormon. But you read the Old Testament, which the Book of Mormon is essentially modeled after, and you read about Moabites, and Egyptians, and Ur, and Chaldeans, and Babylon. And can anyone point to some of these on the map? You bet you can. Because this is a faith that is essentially rooted in history. (coughs) You know, it was interesting that, (coughs) excuse me, for a long time, I mean, who's the greatest king of Israel? David, right. But people thought it was very undermining of scripture that for a long time that up until a few years ago there was nothing in the historical record outside of scripture that actually confirmed even that there was a David until all of a sudden somebody's digging around in the desert and they find what's called a stele it's a big rock with a lot of inscriptions it's like a monument and it talks about Omri of the house of oh no talks about somebody else of the house of David. There's another one that talks about the house of Omri. But all of a sudden, you have a historical 
artifact talking about the house of David. So the history that we have, the secular, the human history, is confirming the biblical history. So the Bible, the Old Testament, is rooted in history. Now why does that matter? Because that history is ultimately leading up to, it is the, tra- the linear trajectory leading up to who? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay, so what do we do with it after the Old Testament? Well, let's look at the New Testament. And where do we start? But let, let's look in, the, who is the preeminent historical, which gospel is the, is the preeminent historical gospel? Luke, exactly. Luke is the only non-Jew to write a book in the New Testament. And what is he? He's a Greek. And what did Greeks do? They actually invented the practice of history. So they are historical by nature. They are historians by inclination and by profession. And so Luke is writing a history. And what does he do? You look at Luke (coughs) uh, 2.2, and he says, I got it right here. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So first of all, what do you have there? You have who is mentioned? Caesar Augustus. We, Luke, and through Luke, the Holy Spirit is setting the context of the birth of Christ in a historical place. You can go to time and place and say this is when Caesar Augustus ruled the Roman Empire. But it's doing that even more so. So first, in the terms of the world, it's placing the historical context, but it's all, it goes even further, and it places the context of the birth of Christ in Judea into a specific time as well. It says, this was first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Well, we know who Quirinius was. His name was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, and he was a Roman of high standing, and the Bible mentions him as the governor of Syria, but you know what else we know? We know from a Roman historian named Tacitus, we know a lot about his life. We also know from the Jewish historian Josephus even more about his life. Why does this matter? Because God, in his sovereignty, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is placing the birth of Christ squarely into human history. Okay, it is a punctuation in the history of the world. In a a time when we have verification, we can go back to sources outside the Bible and verify when this takes place. So the scripture is punctuating human history with the birth of Jesus Christ. And Luke goes even further. He says in in 1.5, back towards the beginning of the book, in the particular context of Judea, he says, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Now, there's a lot of Herods, so and that's something we could sort out another time. But we know who Herod the Great was. We know when he was the king of Judea. So once again, we're giving an opportunity to fix the date of the birth of Jesus Christ. He is injecting himself into human history, into time and space. And we can tell pretty accurately when that happened. What else does Luke have? He has a genealogy. So he's placing the Christ into the broader context of the history of Scripture because we can then trace his genealogy. 
go back to Matthew. Matthew opens with the genealogy. If you look in 2.1, uh, or it opens with the genealogy, and then in 2.1, it also says, in the days of Herod the king. So again, you have Christ placed in the broader history of Scripture, and then you have a specific time in history which we can independently verify the birth of Christ. Does that make sense? So God, why is God doing this? Why, why are these facts important to include? It's because the, the, the Christian faith is one that is entwined with human history in a way that no other religion is entwined with human history. And we'll get to why that is in a little bit. Mark, being the first gospel to be written, is a little rougher around the edges in terms of a lot of things, really. But Mark does in one nine say, uh, following the description of John the Baptist, he says, in those days, as in, in the days of John the Baptist, and we can go back to the Jewish historian Josephus, and he talks about John the Baptist and when John was active in Judea. So again, we can date these times fairly accurately. Can anyone tell me when Vishnu was supposedly incarnated on earth? No. What about Buddha? I mean, but we have very specific details about Jesus and when he was present on the earth. Details that we can verify independently of scripture. God is doing this for a reason. I think perhaps the most interesting though, let me if you turn to John here, is what John does. So if you look at John 1.14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, and it goes on. But it, the flesh, the, the word took on flesh, and it dwelt among us. So he's, he's making the claim that the word, the logos, is, being, is incarnated at a specific time and at a specific place in history. When? when it dwelt among us. So when John is writing, he is saying that the Logos took on the flesh and dwelt among us. And yet what, just a few verses before, does John say about this very Logos? He says in 1-2, he says, He was in the beginning with God. So the same Logos that took on flesh and dwelt among us was in the beginning with God. And was God. So John is tying that specific time and place in history and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He is, he is tying that all the way back to before Genesis in the beginning. Because as you know, John is, of all the books in the Bible, starts the earliest, you know, right? I mean, Genesis starts with the creation of the world, but John starts even earlier than that, in the beginning, when it's just God. So, so the same Logos this, that is there in the beginning, or even before the beginning, is the same Logos that is injected into human time and space and took on flesh and dwelt among us. 
Does that make sense? If you open, uh, turn to 1 John 1, you'll see that John, in the very first verse of 1 John, he echoes this yet again. He says, that which was from the beginning. So there you have, just like in John 1, that which was from the beginning, and then now he switches to the present, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word, I mean, the word of life, the life, was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so it goes on. But again, John is echoing that same assertion that that which was present in the beginning with God and was God is also now in his lifetime to be heard and seen and touched. Well, when was he heard and seen and touched? Well, when Caesar Augustus was the emperor and Quirinius was the governor of Syria was when he first came on the scene. So we can get pretty darn specific in history about when Jesus Christ was, in, in, was incarnate among us. Does that make sense? That's kind of an important thing. We're getting down to brass tacks about when this is. So <clears throat> why is this important? I go back to John, uh, the end of John, in chapter 20, 27 through 29, when Thomas is confronted with the resurrected Jesus, and he says, I won't believe until I put my fingers in the holes of your hand and, and in your side. And what, what does Jesus do? I mean, he wants to touch the physical reality of Jesus, right? He wants to confirm the reality of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do? He invites him to investigate, right? Well, so too are we invited to investigate. We're invited to learn, to, to investigate, to, to touch. Not just Jesus. I mean, we believe without seeing, but the invitation is still there to investigate, to know. Do you think God would put these specific historical characters, real people that lived and breathed in this world into scripture for no reason at all? Why does it matter that the governor, the procurator, Pilate, is named by name? Well, so we know when Jesus was crucified because we can go back and read Josephus and we can tell when Pontius Pilate was the procurator of Judea. So God is giving us markers and inviting us to come and to investigate and to to learn and ultimately to what to believe so there's more there's a lot of history embedded in all of this but does the history end at the gospels no what comes next what exactly acts so Acts is not just, you know, a story. It's the history, it's 
of the early church. It's written as a history, and it gives us all sorts of important details, not just about who was doing what in the formation of the early church, but things that are, I mean, and aside from theological considerations, of which there are many, but it's giving us a, a, an example of the presence of God, that the presence of God does not just end at the ascension. You could, you know, what, what is Acts often called? The Acts of the Apostles, right? Well, I think you could make a really, really darn good case that a better name for Acts would be the deeds of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Because that's really what is going on in the book of Acts. It's the tale of the working of the Holy Spirit through the people of the church in founding and expanding the kingdom of God on earth after the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's what Acts is all about. But at the same time, does Acts have an ending? No, it really doesn't. I mean, it, it ends with Paul preaching in Rome. But what happens to Paul? Well, we certainly don't know from Acts. What happens to Peter? We don't know from Acts. What happens to any of the, the people, you know, any of the apostles or any of their followers? What happens to Timothy? Well, we don't know from Acts because, and I, and I think the reason why Acts doesn't have an ending a real ending a literary ending is because the story is still ongoing what we're doing today what we're doing here in Mount Shasta we're part of the story that begins in Acts we're living the deeds of the Holy Spirits through the successors of the apostles does that make sense we're living out the book of Acts today. I mean, we are the continuation of that story. So then, what then lies in that story from the end of Acts to today? That's the church history we're going to talk about. Yes? Uh, it, 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 comes from, it comes from the New Testament. The word is ecclesia. It means the, the, those who are called out. And so it, that's, that's a word in the New Testament that's used to describe the church. They weren't using that as a name for themselves, though. Does that make sense? So, yes, you're right. The way is one of the names, the, the monikers that they had. But as, as a as a word to describe the existence of the entity, the church was already being used. So, I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're called agape meals. Agape being one of the, the New Testament words for love. Uh, so they, they were called agape meals or agape feasts. And we'll talk about that more in one of the upcoming classes. Right now, we're not going into detail about the history. I'm just trying to set the, set the table as to why we're going to talk about this. 
So, but I think we will get into some of that uh, later on, especially not in four weeks. We'll talk about, uh, oh, crumb. Now I'm distracted because my family's walking in. Now I'm nervous. <laughs> um, we'll be talking about uh, one of the early church fathers. His name is Justin Martyr. And he gives us a really detailed, one of the only really detailed uh, descriptions of an early Christian church service. So when we talk about Justin Martyr, I'll make sure to include some of that as well as far as what an early church service actually looked like. So so we'll get there. Yeah. Um, any other questions before I move on? Okay. Moving on then. Oh, just one last thought. Uh, just to, 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 cap, to encapsulate all that, A, when does the story of Acts actually end? When Jesus Christ comes back. Yeah, that's the, that's the end of Acts. That's the end of the, the deeds of the Holy Spirit acting through the apostles and their descendants. So that, that's, that's really the end. And, the, and church history is not just history, but it's the history of the Holy Spirit working in the world. And that's really, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't stop working in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit has been continuing on to this day and in his present here in this room. And this conversation is part of that. And so the history of the church is going to be a study of the history of the Holy Spirit working through people. So it's important to keep that in mind because, I mean, we don't, it's not, uh, it's not just a political history, although politics are going to get involved. It's not just a, a military history, even though military things will even sometimes be involved. It's not a drama, even though at times it's very dramatic, but it's the history of God working through his people in his world to bring about his kingdom. That's church history. And that's the way we want to keep it focused, you know, framed all of our discussion. We want that to be the, the frame. So, um, thus, therefore, uh, I have this written out. Let's see. Those who share the faith of the apostles have also, also share in their history. It may look like human history, but it is more. It is the history of the deeds of the Holy Spirit worked out in the lives of men and women who have gone before us. So that was the statement I wrote. That, that's not a quote. That's just me trying to write it out more clearly. So hopefully that helps. So one challenge that I think we will face is when we look at church history is what do we do when things get really dark? Now I'm not talking about dark like persecution of the church. That's when the church shines brightest. But what do we do when the church itself gets dark? When, when there are times when it seems like the church has strayed almost completely from the gospel and from the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles. And we'll get to a lot of places where that seems to be what has happened. In some cases, the church may even seem to be unchristian. I mean, that's certainly what things looked like when Luther was, was around. I mean, he... He was certainly looking at a church, reading the Bible and looking at a church and saying, these things do not 
mesh. But, so what do we do with that? And there's a couple things that we need to keep in mind as we look at the history. One is that even though this is a history of the Holy Spirit working in the world, what is the Holy Spirit working through? People, and people are what? Sinners. We're going to break we're going to break things, you know? We we may not know what we've broken, but we're we're probably doing something wrong. So, you know, there's not a church in history that has gotten everything right. There are some churches that have gotten a lot of things right, but there's not a church in history that has done everything perfectly. I mean, even in the New Testament, we always I think there's an inclination to look back to the early church and look at that as the model. And there's some validity in that. But were all those churches perfect churches? No. I mean, look at Corinth, the church in Corinth. Paul had to deal with them a lot. And there are other churches. You look in Revelation, how many of the seven churches that had letters written to them were healthy churches? One. Yeah. So we look back at that church, and there are things that we should and must learn from, but we must also keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is working through broken, sinful people. And honestly, I think that's an encouraging thing, because guess what? We're all broken, sinful people. So if he can get the church to the heights that it's been, he can use us to get it to heights yet achieved. So even, you know, it's encouraging, but it's also just important for us to, to show some grace to those who have gone before us. And another thing to remember is even when the church looks unchristian, when it looks dark and it has strayed and it is corrupt, even in those times, somebody somewhere in that church persevered. And you know what? Through them and through all of them, every single one of us in this room today became believers. We may not know who they are. We may not know in our family history, our, our faith history, who those people are. But at some point when things were at their darkest and bleakest, people persevered in the Holy Spirit. And every single one of us here today is here because of them. Because the Holy Spirit worked through a broken church to preserve its gospel, to perpetuate its gospel, and to renew its gospel in the lives of people. So, you know, again, as we look at the history of the church, we need to keep in mind that we are all here because of it, even at its darkest. And we, we need to have some grace, you know, some, some acceptance, not to accept the wrong things, but to just still recognize that these were people laboring under hard circumstances and, and in, in a lot of ways straying into error, but also at the same time preserving the faith. There was always, and this is something that you can see throughout Scripture, and it's one of the, the least talked about doctrines of Scripture, but there is a doctrine of the remnant. There is always a remnant. And, and that's true in the Old Testament, you know, I mean, you, you can think of how many times was there, you know, how many people did not bow down to the golden calf? You know, there was a remnant that was faithful. How many people stayed true to David when Absalom rebelled against him? There was a remnant. 
You know, how many people were, you know, were like Zechariah and still looked to the hope of the Messiah without becoming Pharisaic? There is still a remnant, you know, and through the Middle Ages when the church had strayed mightily, there is still a remnant. Today, as the church is beset with postmodernism and relativism and you name it, to this day, there's still a remnant. And I pray that we are a part of, of that remnant that is staying true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to staying true to the work of the Holy Spirit through the church. So, and again, this is, this is what we're going to be talking about, is, is those, those who stayed true through persecution. Why were they persecuted? What, what was their response to persecution? What was the you know, what were the theological issues that they had to confront? What kind of challenges do we have that we can take what they struggled through and learned and apply today? So that's, again, this is, this is where we're going to be going. So what do we do with church history once we have, have talked about it? And there's, I think there are there's a lot of things we can do with it, but I think there are three things we need to keep in mind. One is it puts our experience into context. Does anyone today feel like the world is just coming apart? Yeah, okay. Now let me put that into context for you. And I'm not even, you know, we could talk about context in American history, because I'm sure people during the Civil War felt like everything was coming apart. But let's take it even further back. Has anyone ever heard of Augustine? Okay, he's a, one of the most famous theologians in the history of the church. And we'll talk about Augustine. Augustine began his life when the Roman Empire was stable. When he reached the end of his life, there were vandals, barbarians, at the gates of his city in North Africa, and he died as they were laying siege to his city. He lived through the dismemberment of the Roman Empire, an empire that had been stable for a thousand years and had been the existing world order for a thousand years, and he lived through its demise. The entire world order had unraveled right before his eyes. We're not even at that point. We're not even close to that point yet. And yet, in the midst of that, he wrote a book called The City of God, which I would encourage everybody to read. And in it, I mean, the basic assertion is there's two cities. There's a city of man and there's a city of God. And which city are you going to live in? And it's a profound meditation on staying true to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the world literally blows up on itself. So, you know, w when we talk about Augustine and we talk about other people in, this, in the same time and, and through other travails, let that wash over us as context. Like, we are living through an interesting time, and in some ways it's a bad time, but it's not the worst of times. How did they handle really bad times and what can that do to strengthen us as we live through difficult times so that's one one thing that we can do with church history two the second one is that 
we need to be able to recognize that the actions of the church will have consequences for future generations. So we need to, as we look at church history, we're going to see that the deviations from the teaching of the apostles are going to reverberate for centuries. False teaching is going to have massive consequences. Unrighteous living is going to have massive consequences for generations to come. And that should temper our own actions, both in terms of what we teach, like we need to make sure what we're teaching is biblical. We need to really test what we teach and what we believe against the scriptures. But we also need to test our actions and how we interact with a fallen world against the scriptures. And we can, we can really drive that point home by studying the history of the church and how they did that and how they failed at that at times. <clears throat> Lastly, studying church history gives us an immense amount of wisdom. The people that have gone before us were not dumb. They were brilliant, brilliant people with passionate hearts and loves for Jesus Christ. They they sorted out problems that we don't even, they, they answered questions we don't even think to ask. So when we talk about a triune God, when we talk about Jesus Christ being fully man and fully God, when we talk about justification by faith, these are all things that people lived and literally died to bring to us today. So we... We are, we are where we are as a church because of the suffering, the struggles, the quiet contemplation, the prayer of the saints who have gone before us. I want to read to you a quote from John of Salisbury, who was a medieval Christian theologian. He's, he lived between 1115 and 1180, so pretty, just about 900 years ago. <clears throat> he says... So this is him a thousand years ago, roughly, looking back on those who had come before him in the first thousand years of the history of the church. And he says, Our own generation enjoys the legacy bequeathed to it by that which preceded it. We frequently know more, not because we have moved ahead by our own natural ability, but because we are supported by the mental strength of others and possess riches that we have inherited from our forefathers. Bernard of Chartres used to compare us to the puny dwarves perched on the shoulders of giants. He pointed out that we see more and farther than our predecessors, not because we have keener vision or greater height, but because we are lifted up and borne aloft on their gigantic stature. So a thousand years ago, he was recognizing that they were already standing on shoulders of giants. You ever wonder where that phrase comes from? Well, that's, it comes from John of Salisbury. It actually comes from Bernard of Chartres via John of Salisbury. But that was a thousand years ago. We're a thousand years on beyond that. 
we're standing on John and Bernard's shoulders. We're standing on Luther and Calvin's shoulders. But there's a lot of shoulders that we have been able to ascend through the struggle, the work, the suffering, and the lives of saints who have gone before us. That is why we study church history. On a practical level, <clears throat> it gives us a model, just as in, in, in parts of Scripture, for life and living. It gives us a great deal of wisdom in the interpretation of Scripture. You know, we, there's three great traditions in Christianity. There's the, the Roman Catholic Church, there's the Greek Orthodox Church, and then there's the Protestant churches. And there's problems with all three. The biggest difference that lies between them, and there's a lot of big differences, but when you get down to the nuts and bolts, the biggest difference is authority. What is the authority? In the Catholic Church, the authority is the Pope and the Magisterium the College of Cardinals and such. Scripture is subordinate to that. In orthodoxy, it's a little different. They, they have no magisterium. They have no pope. In a lot of ways, they are, even though they look like Catholics, in a lot of ways, the orthodox church is much closer to Protestantism. But they have two parallel lines of authority. They have Scripture, and they hold it highly, but tradition is still an authority within their church. Now, what about our church? What's our authority? The Bible, Scripture. As Luther said, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. That is the authority in the Protestant church. But, but, can anyone read Habakkuk 2.4, and the righteous shall live by faith? and not have Luther whispering in your ear. So, you know, they still influence us. They're not authoritative. Scripture's authoritative. But they chaperone our understanding of Scripture. So we need to understand how we got to where they got. Because we are here because of them. Not just in the interpretation of Scripture, but in the synthesis of scripture and when I say synthesis I mean the formation of theology so we have a doctrine of salvation well that does the Bible doesn't say and this is the doctrine of salvation you know we 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 have theologians who have studied scripture and they have handed it down to us through generations and under a theological understanding of how things work in the early church, those were given to us as creeds. So those creeds still have something to say to us now. They're not authoritative. Scripture is authoritative. But there's something to be learned. We, should, we neglect them at our peril. You know, these are things that we should be familiar with. And, you know, practically, there's a lot of example in the places where they went wrong. Where error crept into the church, we have a lot to learn in how to prevent that, what to look for the things to avoid, the false teachings to reject. So all of those things uh, add up to the sum total of why we want to study church history. I guess in a summary, I would say that it is the brothers and sisters of the past 
who are indwelt by the same spirit that we are, and they have left us a rich inheritance, and we neglect that at our peril. So let us not neglect that. Let us, for the next few weeks, for the next few months, let us look at our forefathers and, and foremothers, if that's a word, in the faith, the, the brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And, and you know, the f- in looking for uh, a verse to sort of sum up all of this, we thought that uh, Hebrews 12.1 was, uh, was pretty good, even though it's, we're kind of expanding its context a little bit. Uh, where the author of Hebrews says, after the great hall of fame of faith in chapter 11, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So we are going to be looking at so great a cloud of witnesses, not from the Old Testament, but from the acts and deeds of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and their descendants. That's what we're going to be looking at. So... uh, so I think we're going to be doing six weeks, maybe more than that, um, and that'll at least take us up to the f- first 600 years of the church, and, and hopefully, if things align, we can continue on from there. So that's all I have for today. Does anyone have any questions? Hoyt. Oh, yeah. So before we actually start in on the history, next week, I'm going to spend the class time talking about the canon of, of the of scripture the new testament how we have what how we it is that we received uh the new testament as we know it today as it existed from the beginning but you know there were certainly attacks on the canon in the early church as there continued to be attacks on what books are accepted in the new testament to this day so we're going to be talking about uh the canonicity and the reception of the New Testament, and a little bit the Old Testament too, although that's that's less in dispute. So, because um, the scripture is the source of, of all things. Uh, so when we're talking about the early church, we at least want to establish what the scripture is and how it came to be within the context of the history of the church. So, and then from there, we're, we'll continue on into the history of the church. Yeah, I mean, he's talking, when he's saying that in, for, in Hebrews, he's referring, I mean, that's coming right at the end of, I mean, that's the, the first verse of chapter 12 coming off the end of chapter 11, which is often the, you know, the great, as people sometimes call it, the hall of fame of faith from the Old Testament. And those people that are enumerated in chapter 11, you know, are part of that cloud of witnesses that testify to Jesus Christ. And so what we're, what we're asserting is that that cloud of witnesses doesn't stop with acts, that there are, the cloud continues to this day, and, and Lord willing, we will be a part of that cloud of witnesses to the future generations if the Lord tarries long enough for that to happen. So, you know, the cloud of witnesses grows until the Lord returns. So, 
Any other questions? Okay. So don't miss the class. So I will uh, close in prayer then. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that we are able to be here, that somebody somewhere for generation upon generation loved you and passed on their faith so that each of us today can have faith in you and, and eternal life through you and knowledge of you and someday to be in your presence forever. We thank you for those who have gone before us. I pray that you will bless our study of them, that our lives, our knowledge of you, our relationship with you will be enriched through their lives and their knowledge of you and their relationship with you. So I pray that you will have your hand on this church as we continue to navigate challenging times, but that we keep in perspective that maybe our times aren't so challenging compared to some who bled and died in your name during truly challenging times. And let us be lifted up by their sacrifice just as you sacrificed yourself for us. In your name, we pray all these things through the power of your spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody.